Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Fleming Rose talks about free speech, death threats, and political correctness. Gene Healy discusses stubborn national security policies even as administrations change. Kevin Dowd takes a bearish view of Bitcoin. Damon Root evaluates the long fight for the Supreme Court. And psychologist Steven Pinker argues on behalf of optimism, not pessimism, amid the world's increasing abundance. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Republicans won big in elections in November of 2014 and here to talk about the 114th Congress and uh, the policy uh, considerations that they should uh, work on. John Maniscalco, Director of Congressional Affairs, and David Bose, Executive Vice President here at the Cato Institute and author of the forthcoming The Libertarian Mind. So uh, just to start here, as we record this, there are uh, fights that have apparently in the very, very short term been resolved over uh, federal spending. But David Bose, I expect that there will be more butting heads uh, given uh, President Obama's unwillingness to deal on uh, certain spending issues? Well, there certainly will be, and obviously there's an argument on who's unwilling, who's who's not sitting down at the table, and a lot of that was blamed on Harry Reid before. They won't really have Harry Reid to blame this time. They will have to talk about the president. For the past several years, we keep hearing about the dysfunctional budget process that keeps running into government shutdowns and threats to the debt ceiling and so on. What is dysfunctional is an $18 trillion national debt and the process that led to that. We have trillion-dollar deficits every year now. We're a little bit lower than that now. We'll be going back up if they don't change things. And the media need to focus on the real dysfunction is a federal budget that essentially doubled in the George W. Bush years, not the fact that once in a while we actually cut a little bit of spending because there's a debt ceiling impending. All right. And John Maniscalco, there's uh, going to be, I assume, a renewed struggle to impose some sort of uh, debt or spending cap. What are the likelihoods of, of something like that uh, coming forth. Sure. Well, uh, the Congress back in, uh, I believe it was 2011, passed the Budget Control Act, which imposed uh, spending limits uh, every year until, I believe, 2021. Um, the Murray or the Ryan Murray budget deal that was done earlier um, or subsequent to that sort of delayed the uh, BCA spending caps but added an additional two years onto it. So I think there's always a, a fear among uh, small government types that while these spending limitations can occur, uh, that it doesn't handcuff the uh, uh, powers of future government, uh, future Congresses. And so there certainly will be amongst conservative Republicans an effort to remain within the BCA spending levels, perhaps within uh, the uh, Murray-Ryan deal. But um, there is, I think, also a hostility um, or, or a distrust towards the leadership in both parties and that they'll try to bust through those. So we'll see. There will be a, a, certainly a fight. Um, and with a Republican Congress, you should expect um, some sort of at least freeze of government spending. But um, I, would, I would not – it's by no means assured that 
spending is going to be reined in. And of course, it's worth noting that Republicans seem very interested in restraining spending when there is a Democrat in the White House. <laughs> yes, they seem that way. And of course, in the Clinton years, there actually was some spending restraint. Uh, that was a president who responded to being walloped in an election uh, by saying the era of big government is over. We have not heard that from President Obama. And so far, he has not seemed very open to reining in his LBJ, FB, FDR-style ambitions. Uh, now, um, on, on to other issues. This is a, a, an issue that when Democrats were in control of both houses of Congress and the White House, they didn't do anything on, and that is immigration. So uh, I've talked uh, numerous times with Alex Narasta, our immigration policy analyst here, but John Maniscalco, how likely is it that there is some kind of reform uh, in a libertarian direction that both houses of Congress and the president actually could sign off on? There would have been a good opportunity if President Obama hadn't poisoned the well with his executive order. Now, there is some debate among libertarian circles about whether or not what he did was constitutional. But among Republicans in Congress, it's essentially a uh, unanimous agreement that it was unconstitutional. And you, it, the response from the Republican conference, at least from the conversations I've had, is not what you would expect that the president is acting unconstitutionally and therefore we have to take him to court and impeach him or that uh, this is just blanket amnesty. They genuinely feel that the president has robbed them of their legislative function uh, towards an issue that they wanted to address. Uh, I think that Republicans would like to address immigration in a piecemeal approach. They all agree that border security has to be the first step. They do not have any agreement on what the next steps will be. And so whether that includes a guest worker visa program, some sort of uh, path to citizenship, uh, an easier path, we don't know yet. Um, and it's unfortunate because this was a real opportunity uh, that the president seems to have robbed the Congress of. Now, but we had prominent Republicans in states where immigration is, is, a, is a very dicey issue. And I'm thinking specifically of Ted Cruz and Jeff Flake, who have offered reforms that one would think the president would wholeheartedly endorse. Certainly. Well, like I said, the, uh, the, there is now a large source of distrust with the president. So working with the president is not what it once was. And, and by that, I mean just a few days after the election. Uh, it was a small window of opportunity that seems to have been squandered. But with that said, um, there, there is still, I believe, an actual effort by the leadership in, in both houses of Congress on the Republican side, at least, to come up with some sort of immigration policy that uh, addresses this. And largely, that's in view that they have a demographic problem, that they have to reach out to minorities, including um, African-Americans and, and uh, Hispanics, so that the one, immigration certainly falls into that. And uh, this is really just an opportunity for them to search and, and see what they can do. I, I don't think it's a knee-jerk reaction of, let's put more people on the border and deport all the people who came here illegally. They generally want a solution, and it's a matter of sitting down and finding that policy. John, is it possible that there is a reform plan that could get a bipartisan majority in Congress in the House and be signed by the president, but that it cannot get a majority of the Republican caucus and therefore they won't bring it up? Well, what you're referring to, I think, is called the Hastert rule, which is that the idea is that any bill that passes the House should have the majority of the majority behind it. Uh, in the last Congress, I believe that rule had been violated by the Speaker at least three times. I think it's exactly three times, but at least three times. And that sparked a, a huge backlash amongst uh, House conservatives 
and uh, sort of a not very well-kept secret effort to perhaps stage a coup. Um, it seems that that's over with now, but I think Boehner did kind of learn a lesson, and I highly doubt that he would move an immigration bill that doesn't have the support of at least 50 percent of its, con its conference. All right. On, on, a, uh, on related issues uh, that we at the Cato Institute talk about Republicans uh, having a precise brand of tone deafness on these issues. There's social issues. We did not hear quite as much about that uh, in the election of 2014. Does that set any type of tone for uh, this Congress? You know, I'm tone deaf and I deal with it by not singing. Um, and the Republicans are tone deaf on social issues and they mostly dealt with it by shutting up during the last election. So yeah, I think that you're not going to see any particular action on abortion. Um, I don't think you're going to see the Republicans uh, wanting to push anything to try to push back on the gay marriage court decisions that are happening. Um, now, depending on what you call a social issue, of course, the Republicans are moving against the tide of public opinion to block marijuana reform, legalization here in the District of Columbia. They've not tried to block it in Colorado or Washington, presumably because they do have some respect for states' rights. But in D.C., where they believe that legitimately that Congress has the power to rule, um, they uh, are moving to block D.C. from implementing the results of its referendum on legalization. That seems to me another opportunity to turn off young people who are starting to get a little jaded about Obama, but the Republicans keep reminding them why they don't vote Republican. And, and I, it's fair to note, I think, that Congress generally does use D.C. as a, a signaling mechanism for national problems. Yeah, that's right. And, and Republicans have talked about making D.C. a model of entrepreneurial capitalism or uh, they used it as a school choice model uh, back uh, during the Clinton years, I guess, um, 1994, the Clinton-Gingrich years. So, yes, there has been that sort of thing going on. And this is a way for them to make a statement that despite the fact that a majority of Americans now want to legalize marijuana, the majority party in the House of Representatives does not. Mitch McConnell, who is the new Senate majority leader, has sort of changed his tune a little bit uh, on repealing and replacing Obamacare. That slogan is not nearly as popular as it, uh, as it was earlier, but what are the prospects for substantive changes through the legislative process? We all know there is a uh, Supreme Court case coming uh, on elements of Obamacare, but in terms of Congress actually doing something that would withstand a presidential veto? Well, that's that's an interesting question. So the Republicans have tried to fully repeal Obamacare dozens of times uh, and never expecting it to ever see the light of day in the Senate. That, of course, now will change. And that now changes their calculus. They'll probably use something called budget reconciliation. So the Republicans this year will be able to pass a budget resolution since they have both houses of Congress. The reconciliation process is simply a procedural move which allows for the Congress to make uh, e make it easier for them to change current law so that they can reflect those spending priorities uh, inherent in involved in or included in the budget resolution. Um, so the Republicans now have, a, have kind of a choice to make. Uh, do they do something that they think they can possibly get, like corporate tax reform, something like that? Uh, one school of thought says that's the way they should go. The president will want to work with them on that. There's another school of thought that says, well, this is going to be a very political year. The Republicans had a very good year in 2014, but might not have such a great year in 2016, given the 
the uh, dynamics of the political map. So um, what they may try to do is sort of uh, repeal fully Obamacare and send it to the president's desk. They'll only need 51 votes instead of 60 to do so in the Senate. And knowing that the president will veto it and then therefore tie the Democratic nominee in 2016 to the president's decisions and be able to point to the American people, this unpopular law could have been repealed if not for the Democratic Party. Um, so with that, though, they know that that won't happen, um, that they won't get their full repeal. But there are several other things that they could do. But that, those also present certain pitfalls. They can uh, repeal the medical device tax, which seems that Democrats are on board with that as well. De President Obama seems like he'd be more than willing to get rid of it. The problem is, is that the people who don't like the medical device tax are part of the coalition to repeal Obamacare. So once you take that provision out, you lose that part of the coalition and weaken your own your full, the Republican real goal of full repeal. So uh, they do have cer certain things to go through. There's the IPAB they could potentially get rid of. Um, there's also, you know, the employer mandate that they could try to get rid of. But even that, that will, with the how big uh, this, uh, decision coming up in June, you don't want, if you're a congressional Republican, to do anything that might jeopardize the standing of the plaintiffs in that court case. So. The idea now is, well, do we improve the bill, but will we not improve the bill so much that we completely destroy our own coalition to repeal the, uh, to destroy Obamacare? And so that's what the Republicans have to do, have to think through. It seems to me that the most logical solution is to go for full repeal, knowing that Obama will veto it and use that as a political uh, tool in 2016. All right. And we've, we've seen positive reforms from Congresses in big election years. I'm thinking of uh, 1986 was a big tax reform and 1996, I believe there were some uh, changes to the immigration system. Well, in 1996 was also a welfare reform. So yes, with the Gingrich Congress and the Clinton administration wanting to show they could accomplish things uh, and with President Clinton, who campaigned in the first place as a new kind of Democrat and then acceded to the message of the 1994 election by saying the era of big government is over, there was a scope for reining in spending, reforming welfare, passing NAFTA, a lot of good things that happened there. Not looking much like that right now, but President um, Obama could decide that he wants to actually have some accomplishments. One area where that might happen would be international trade. The Republicans should be positive about uh, movement in the direction of freer trade. Presidents usually are. They kind of see the national interest in that. Obama would have to go up against some powerful factions, notably unions in his own party, though. And it's not yet clear. But, but the value of it is it actually is something he supports that Republicans also support. And presumably, the fast-track authority is something Republicans would want to give to this president, well, even this, this president. This president takes fast-track authority <laughs> when it isn't even offered. So sure, in, in trade <laughs> policy where he would do something mostly good with it, yes. Uh, it was, it's my understanding that it was it was actually Nancy Pelosi that was uh, so opposed it to giving this president fast track trade promotion authority and Harry Reid. Yeah, the Democrats do not support this. All right. So on uh, NSA spying, it seems uh, that it's perhaps less likely that this Congress will do something. But uh, it, it's worth noting that the Amash Amendment in uh, just this year or late last year, I, I forget 
barely failed in, in the House. And there are some prominent Republicans. I'm thinking of Mike Lee of Utah, Rand Paul, uh, and others in the Senate who are willing to make this kind of a big deal. Sure. Um, and you saw that uh, this earlier, not too long ago, that the USA Freedom Act, which would have um, ended bulk surveillance uh, due to the, I believe, Section 215 of the Patriot Act, um, it failed. And among those who voted against it were the hawkish types who think that this is well within the government's uh, powers to keep Americans safe, and uh, people like Rand Paul who thought that it didn't go far enough. So under that sort of circumstance, it's hard to see how that will happen. However, the um, and by that, what I mean is it's hard to see how you can kind of get a coalition on both sides voting against the bill as opposed to voting for it. Um, but with that said, the uh, Patriot Act is up for renewal in 2015. And given this report uh, that the Senate has come out with and given the sort of – I think there's a general view that just government is out of control. There's no limiting principles anymore. It just does – what it does keeps things in secret. And if anything, this report showed that it can even keep the president in the dark uh, with regard to government powers. So I think that there will be an opportunity to at least discuss these issues thoughtfully and with a uh, suspicious eye towards government power. Whether or not it'll pass, I don't know. And we saw the Republican response to the surveillance, they thought it was a sort of a hit job on President Bush and that it didn't adequately take into account national security concerns. Um, it's just something that, you know, you can kind of expect from the Republican Party. You might not get a very strong debate, but certainly on the outside with libertarian groups and, and sort of the rise of the libertarian movement, you'll see a critical eye towards what government can do. And there will be a lot of opportunities to make our voices known in the next year. There's so much polarization in congressional voting these days, it becomes almost impossible to do a rating of Congress from a conservative or liberal or libertarian perspective because it's all party line. So that was one of the things that was interesting about the Amash Amendment. It split both parties in the House about 60-40. And what you saw was some civil libertarian Democrats and some libertarian-leaning Republicans both voting to rein in at least a small part of the surveillance state and reflecting, I think, the distrust of government that is so fundamental to the American founding and the American character. But a majority of the House still lined up with the national security establishment. It's very hard to get a majority of Congress to go against the experts who have the knowledge, who have the uh, secret knowledge that the rest of us don't know about. So I think actually reining things in is a challenge, but the transparency and the publicity has got to be a damper on some of the worst elements of the surveillance state. All right. Uh, just to, to wrap up here, uh, from each of you, I'd like to know what you think the best thing this Congress is going to do. It'll eventually take a recess. That's one. I was going to say adjourn. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I would hope that this Congress will not renew the Export-Import Bank. Now, that's probably a hope and not an expectation. But really, if there's – there is no clearer example of corporate welfare for big companies. If the small government Republicans and the anti-big business Democrats can't get together to eliminate a small part of the corporate welfare state, then what hope is there? I think that there is actually a genuine opportunity, and this might not be the sexiest of issues, but uh, the Congress will have to take up 
uh, a highway bill. Uh, the current highway bill will expire at the end of May. And the what you don't find, what, what is not talked about very much is that bailouts still go on. We talk about the housing bailout, the banking bailout, auto bailout. No one talks about the highway bailouts, which happen almost annually. That does, uh, tens of billions of dollars, I think well over 50, if not $80 billion, have been spent bailing out the highway trust fund because it's no longer sustainable. So general fund transfers to the highway trust fund because the gas, we spend vastly more than we take in. If the Republican Congress um, takes this opportunity to devolve the responsibility back to the states, which was the original intention of the highway trust or the highway program, it would be a great step in the right direction and it'd get commerce flowing, um, things like that. So it's, uh, I think there's an opportunity there. Uh, we'll see how it goes. All right. Uh, as someone once said, a motion to adjourn is always in order, and we'll uh, take that now. John Maniscalco, Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and David Bowes, Executive Vice President at Cato, and author of the forthcoming The Libertarian Mind. Look for that in February, and uh, keep up to date on uh, these issues at our website, cato.org. Journalists face constant intimidation, whether it takes the extreme form of beheadings, death threats, government censorship, or simply political correctness, it casts a shadow over their ability to tell a story. No one knows this better than Fleming Rose. In his new book, The Tyranny of Silence, a one cartoon ignited a global debate on the future of free speech, Rose details the firestorm launched when his newspaper chose to publish depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. He discussed the book and the future of free speech with Jonathan Rausch at the Cato Institute in November. It is indeed a privilege to sit on the same dais with Fleming Rose, who is, although he would deny it, I think you'll know in an hour why I regard him as a genuine hero, a remarkable man who has written a remarkable book. Um, it's really an extraordinary read. I, I can't recommend this book strongly enough because it's not only got very good theory on the importance of free speech and on what's going on in Europe, but it's also a person's journey of discovery, uh, finding out in a very immediate way why these things matter, going to the core of some very dark truths in Europe and also in America. Most of you probably know something about what happened in 2005, uh, but I thought we'd just begin there with at least a brief recap. As Fleming's book does, this begins with self-censorship that predates the Mohammed cartoons, right? It involves a children's book. Yes, uh, in, in the middle of September 2005, um, a very famous uh, Danish children's writer, his name is Kor Blutken, um, he went public uh, to the Danish news service um, saying that I'm writing a children's book about the life of the Prophet Mohammed, and in children's book you do need illustrations of the main character, uh, but I have problems founding an illustrator for this book. And according to Mr. Blutken, uh, three illustrators turned down this offer, as far as I remember, and the one who finally said yes insisted on anonymity, which is a form of self-censorship. Um, out of fear, you do, want, you do not want to appear under your own name when you do something. Uh, he was specifically referring to the fate of uh, Simon Rushdie, uh, who received a fatwa from Ayatollah Khomeini in 1989 because of a few pages in the satanic verses 
but he was also referring to the fate of Theo van Gogh, a Dutch filmmaker who was killed in Amsterdam almost exactly 10 years ago uh, because he had made a movie that a young Muslim, a young Dutch Muslim, found had offended his God. But we had only Karl Blutkens word in the beginning. He was the only source to this story. So, um, uh, um, uh, and it was a front page story in Denmark. And then we had a following up discussion at the paper. How can we follow up on this story? And then this idea came up. Why don't we invite illustrators or cartoonists uh, to draw the Prophet Muhammad uh, as they see him, so we can see if there is censorship and, and there is this fundamental journalistic pr principle, don't tell it, show it. One of the factors you mentioned that's particularly interesting, you're not politically naive, but, but you refer to the tyranny of silence. This is one of a lot of very good quotations about it, as a society in which grievance fundamentalism is consistently practiced where nothing meaningful can be uttered since any speech of any sort may potentially be characterized as offensive to some person or group. What is grievance fundamentalism and to what extent is it driving this phenomenon? I think it's a consequence of the erosion of the very important distinction between speech and action, between words and deeds. A lot, an increasing number of people believe that words can be as uh, criminal as deeds, um, and 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 I think the irony is that that this is in fact the way the Christian Church thought about these issues before the Enlightenment. That when you when you criticized the Church or doctrine verbally, it was being perceived as a physical attack on the Church, and therefore you could be condemned to death. Um, but I've, I think the issue is, you know, it's also because people want harmony. They don't want conflict. Uh, they believe that we, if we, if we, uh, you know, if we are quiet, if we don't talk about things that uh, that bother us, then we will, then we will keep the uh, the, the the peace. But I don't believe so. Uh, and I think basically, you know, there are two ways to go. You can say, if you respect my taboo, I respect yours. If you do not criticize what is sensitive to me, I will not criticize what is sensitive to you. If Holocaust denial is a criminal offense as it is in many European countries, publication of cartoons like these should also be a criminal offense. And if that's the case, then you would also need not to publish cartoons of other religions, uh, uh, making fun of other religions and prophets and if you do that with religion, you would also have to do the same with, with non-believers. A lot of people like Karl Marx or, uh, or Milton Friedman or Adam Smith, so then we are not allowed to make fun of them as well. And uh, I basically believe, you know, this is the road to the title uh, of my book, A Tyranny of Silence, where, where you are not able to say anything that not will be offensive to somebody. And I, I, I make the point that, that, you know, in a democracy, you have many rights. The right to free speech, to freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, you have a right to vote, freedom of movement. But I think the only right you should not have in a democracy is a right not to be offended. That we have to pay, you know, the price we have to pay for living in this nice, free, open societies is that there are people 
who from time to time will say something we find offensive. And that, is growing, that risk is growing with diversity. Why is it that presidents come and go and national security policies seem to remain the same? At a book event in November, Gene Healy discussed the persistence of those policies in the face of changing political winds. It seems like uh, ages ago now, but the, if you can remember, there really was a time when civil libertarians, some of them at least, held out hope for the Obama presidency. Uh, if elected, this former constitutional law professor was going to be our first civil libertarian president, Jeffrey Rosen enthused in the New York Times op-ed page in 2008. Uh, and on inauguration night in 2009, the Washington Post reported that defense lawyers at Guantanamo Bay formed a boisterous conga line chanting, rule of law, baby. Well, they woke up to a hell of a hangover, one that's uh, going on six years. Uh, our first civil libertarian president, as uh, Professor Glennon outlines in the book, is, among other things, launched uh, more than six times as many drone strikes as uh, his predecessor, including the remote control execution of an American citizen. Uh, president Obama has continued and expanded dragnet sur domestic surveillance programs based on a secret interpretation of the Patriot Act, and he's currently in the middle of his second undeclared war, all of which leads to the central question in Pro Professor Glennon's book, why does national security policy remain constant even when one president is replaced by another who is a candidate repeatedly, forcefully, and eloquently promised fundamental changes in that policy? It's an important question, and this is an important book. It's also, at times, an extremely dark and radical one, and I mean that in the best possible way. <laughs> uh, as Professor Glennon outlines in the book, there are, uh, we, we tend to spend uh, much of our time on two conventional explanations for why, even though presidents come and go, uh, policies remain the same. Uh, the first is what he terms the rational actor model, that we get the national security policies that we do because these are the national security policies we need given the threats that we face. And this is the explanation that's preferred by Jack Goldsmith, the former Office of Legal Counsel, head in the Bush administration, uh, a, currently a Harvard Law professor, and he serves as a bit of a foil for Professor Glennon in the book. Uh, as Goldsmith has put it, quote, the presidency invariably gives its occupants a sober outlook on the problems of national security. So sitting in the Oval, getting a face full of the president's daily briefing every morning tends to concentrate the mind wonderfully, that the story goes. Uh, so it's no surprise that confronted with new information and new responsibilities, learning about the dangerous world that we live in, uh, Obama changed his mind about the correctness of the Bush counterterror policies. Uh, Goldsmith quotes Jack Kennedy's observation that it is easier to make the speeches than it is finally to make the judgments. The second conventional explanation for policy continuity is what Professor Glennon calls the government politics model. Uh, when it comes to the president, it would 
emphasize factors like who the president is, the content, content of his character, and also what political pressures are brought to bear on the presidency. So in this account, maybe, maybe what the president's daily briefing actually tends to concentrate the president's mind on isn't so much the rational pursuit of uh, national security, but political self-preservation. Uh, he becomes ever more aware that he's going to be held personally responsible if a bomb goes off anywhere in the country, uh, particularly when, as in, in this case, He's a liberal democratic president carrying a McGovernite albatross and facing Republicans who are rapidly eager to paint him as soft on terror. Well, of course, it's insane to hold any elected official personally responsible for providing seamless protection to, in a, to a country of over 300 million people. All the surveillance and the drone strikes in the world can't begin to meet that boundless conception of responsibility. But as Obama's one-time national security advisor, James L. Jones, put it, who wants to be the guy that says we don't need these powers anymore, and then three weeks later, something happens? Now, Professor Glennon offers a third explanation, one that's been overshadowed by these first two conventional explanations, organizational behavior model, that increasingly the real power to shape national security policy isn't in the hands of elected officials. It uh, resides in this Trumanite network of managers who populate the uh, military uh, intelligence and law enforcement and diplomatic bureaucracies. Uh, the national security state is drifting towards becoming this autonomous, self-perpetuating entity. Uh, it increasingly sets the table for elected officials' choices and dictates the terms to them. Reading the book reminded me of how some years back I heard a cynical libertarian, I can't remember who it is anymore, but I remember what he said, uh, sum up our political dilemma as follows. He said, the federal government is a runaway train and presidential elections are a contest to see who gets to sit up in the front cab and pretend he's driving. Bitcoin, the emerging cryptocurrency, derives much of its power from its decentralization. Kevin Dowd at the Cato Institute's annual monetary conference in November said that decentralization is unlikely to persist, and he believes Bitcoin is an experiment that will fail. Bitcoin is the most radical innovation in the monetary space for a long time. It's an entirely private system that does not depend on trust, except trust in the network. So it runs itself. So the key principle is distributed trust, which maintains the integrity of the system. And we can well understand the attractions of such a system, a tamper-proof money supply, no discretion, no QE, no central bank. There is, however, just one small problem, and that is, despite its success today, Bitcoin is not sustainable. This means it will collapse, as Herb Stein once said, what cannot go on will stop. Let's go back to basics. As a first pass, we can compare Bitcoin to this stone money in Milton Friedman's case study. In this story, the people of the island of Yap in Micronesia used large, used large round limestone disks as money. These were too heavy to move, so when ownership was to be transferred, the owner would publicly announce the change in ownership. 
So the stone would remain where it was, and the islanders would maintain a collective memory of the ownership history of the stones. So both the stone money and Bitcoin share a critical feature. Both operate via a decentralized collective memory. Bitcoin's a type of e-cash system, so there's no central body to authorize transactions, just the network to validate them. And it's this competition between Bitcoin miners that maintains the integrity of the system. So this leads us to Bitcoin's value proposition. The first point is that the system does not depend on trust, just distributed trust. The second point is it has no single point of failure, so it cannot be brought down by knocking out any particular entity. The third point is a high degree of anonymity. So bottom line here is the Bitcoin is a dream come true for anarchist criminals and proponents of private money. There's also a strong element of incentive compatibility, and underlying that, the security comes from the, the Bitcoin protocol, which is like the constitution of the system. So these features ensure that players play by the rules and that Bitcoins are not overissued. However, there's a fundamental contradiction in the system, and that is that it requires atomistic competition on the part of the miners, but the mining industry is characterized by large economies of scale. In fact, they are so large that the the industry is a natural monopoly. And obviously, atomistic competition and a natural monopoly are inconsistent. The inbuilt centralization tendencies of the one mean that the, the firms in the industry will get bigger and bigger until effectively there is an actual monopoly. Now, the two reasons uh, to believe this, the first is based on risk aversion. If two miners merge their operations, they get the same expected return, but they obtain a return with a higher probability. So that means if it's, it's worthwhile for any two miners to converge, it's worthwhile for any group of miners to converge. We end up with a single miner. The second reason is even stronger, and that is the negative externalities of Bitcoin competitive mining. The point here is the bottom line is that individual miners do not take into account the negative cost externalities of their, that their own mining activities impose on other miners. So you get an equilibrium which is excessive resources devoted to mining, excessive bandwidth, excessive energy, excessive investment in computing resources. To give an idea of this, in the early days, a home PC could produce hundreds of Bitcoins a day. By the early days, I mean two or three years ago. Uh, that's ancient history. But now, an advanced mining computer can, can expect to mine only a fraction of a Bitcoin a day. So we estimate that the energy power devoted to Bitcoin mining has increased by a factor of over 10 billion. Bear in mind that most of the system uh, could be maintained on a single server. So most of this is waste. Now the implications of these centralizing tendencies are totally destructive. They destroy every single element of its value proposition. So one by one, all the dominoes fall down. So first off, decentralized trust. Once the individual miners coalesce into a dominant player, then that entity has control over the system. It decides which transactions are to be deemed valid and which are not. We then have to trust that entity not to abuse its system. And we're back to the old trust model that Bitcoin tried to escape from. If we go back to the island of stone money, imagine if everyone woke up one morning unable to remember who owned what stones. But then one helpful individual offers to remember for everybody. So you imagine how well that would work. So by this point, the dominant player has taken control and it becomes the monarch of the system. It's still a constitutional monarch because you still have the protocol. Once that player, dominant player emerges, it becomes a point of failure for the system as a whole. 
So one could imagine Uncle Sam being very interested. If he wanted, he could now take Bitcoin down and stop all that money flowing to the bad guys. Think of Islamic State. The next casualty is anonymity. A dominant player cannot possibly operate in a clandestine manner beyond the reach of law enforcement. This means it can't escape regulation, and the likelihood is that the government would destroy anonymity at a stroke by requiring that that player insist that users register themselves by providing photo ID, etc., etc. The next casualty is incentive compatibility. Well, I would simply make the point that the system never really was fully incentive compatible, but it's taken a, a considerable time for these problems to, to become clear. And the final domino would be the Bitcoin protocol, because the protocol would no longer provide a discipline because the dominant player can rewrite it at will. And so just like a modern central bank, it would start throwing bits of the protocol out that it didn't like, like the bits that constrain the overissue of Bitcoin. And then the system would become an absolute monarchy, assuming that there was anybody left in the system by then. So the question that's crying out for an answer is why users of Bitcoin would continue to have any confidence in the system uh, when every single element of its value proposition had been kicked down. And I would assert that the obvious answer is that they wouldn't. And remember also that the willingness of any individual to accept Bitcoin is entirely dependent on confidence that other people will accept it. There's, there's no intrinsic value here. These are not like gold or tulips. Nor is there any rational reason to trust a dominant player. Trust comes from credible assurances, credible pre-commitment, the willingness to submit to account and all that sort of stuff. So the dominant player in the, the dominant mining pool is an outfit called GHash. Now it announces that it's the number one mining pool. It is trusted by 300k users and dates all the way back to late last year. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know who it, who's behind it or even where it's based. What we do know is it has a logo that looks like the hammer and sickle and it has a bad reputation. It pointedly refuses to adhere to the principles of high-level Bitcoin idealism that the other players adhere to. So I find this all very reassuring. Now this might be coincidence, forgive me if I'm unfair here, but um, it shares its name with this character. Ghash is a character from Ghostbusters. Now this might be a coincidence, or it might be just that the guys behind have got a good sense of humor. In the film, Ghash is a power-obsessed poltergeist who pulls the other ghosts into a, a, a big mouth in his stomach. They get drained of their power, and he gets bigger and bigger. So by the time the Ghostbusters encounter him, he become too powerful to control. He was able to shoot beams from his eyes, pull up floorboards, disarm the team, and throw them around at will. So I put it to you that perhaps Ghash is a spectral entity in more ways than one. Now here's my point. John Pierpont Morgan once said that the essence of banking is character. Someone I do not trust would not get any money from me on all the bonds in Christendom, he said. We don't see much of that character here. And if you really trust such an outfit, we have a bridge to sell you. In any case, there's no reason to want to trust such an outfit when you can use reputable systems like PayPal. So to, turn to return back to the storyline, the whole system eventually becomes a house of cards, there's nothing within the system to maintain confidence in the system, and anything, a scandal, a government attack, anything that could trigger a loss of confidence and bring the whole system down. So I would assert that the rational decision is to sell before that happens. If enough people think the same way, and I would say, why shouldn't they? 
then expectations will become self-fulfilling, there'll be a stampede, the price of Bitcoin will collapse to zero, and the whole system will collapse. I would say it's only a question of when. And with the specter of GHash hovering over the system, our guess is soon, but we might be wrong. Now, I dare say our message is a disappointment to Bitcoiners. I share that disappointment. It would have been great if Bitcoin could displace government money. However, Bitcoin's an experiment. Most experiments fail, and Bitcoin, I believe, will be another failed experiment. Now, I don't wish it so, but that's the way I think it is. Now, we make this prediction before the event, and if we're wrong, been wrong many times, we'll eat humble pie. But we don't think so. There's also, I mean, most Bitcoiners I've communicated to are very reasonable people, but there is a lunatic fringe. Their response to even the mildest criticism is, to be frank, to foam at the mouth and hurl abuse at wicked disbelievers. To them, we simply say, oh, do grow up. And if you won't listen to us, take Voltaire's advice. To succeed in life, it's not enough to be stupid. You also have to have good manners. What is the proper role of the Supreme Court under the Constitution? Should the court be active, restrained, engaged, or deferential? Or is that even the proper way to look at the question? In his new book, Overruled, Damon Root traces this debate from the Constitution's conception to the president. Root discussed the book at the Cato Institute in November. I, uh, I wanted to begin today by uh, reading you a, a pair of quotations that sort of set up the issues that this book uh, discusses. The first comes from a, a letter written in 1920 by Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. He writes, if my fellow citizens want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. The second quote comes from uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' 2012 decision upholding the constitutionality of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, uh, also known as Obamacare. He writes, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. In other words, Roberts might have said, uh, let, let the people go to hell. Now, at, at a glance, this might seem like a sort of uh, pair of strange bedfellows. Uh, Justice Holmes was this progressive era jurist who uh, made his name by urging the Supreme Court and arguing that the courts should uphold progressive era economic regulation, that the, that the court shouldn't be second-guessing the economic uh, judgments of reform-minded lawmakers. Uh, his views were hugely influential on progressive jurists and also on the, on the New Deal later on. Uh, John Roberts, by contrast, well, you know, he's nobody's idea of a progressive. Uh, he, you might say he's the uh, epitome of today's conservative legal establishment. So what is a conservative like uh, Chief Justice Roberts doing invoking this progressive hero, Oliver Wendell Holmes? Well, the answer is that both of these men are exponents of the philosophy of judicial restraint or judicial deference, which is the idea that judges should defer to the will of the majority, should refrain from overturning uh, democratically enacted laws, and should respect the policy judgments made by the elected branches of government. As, as Roberts put it in the healthcare case, it is not our job to overturn this, this law. 
And furthermore, although judicial deference um, may have been a progressive touchstone in the time of Oliver Wendell Holmes, these days it is also a touchstone of conservative legal jurisprudence. In fact, it's been a mainstream conservative legal idea for the past 40 or so years. As an example of that, uh, consider Robert Bork, who I would argue has been the most inf- one of the most influential conservative legal thinkers of the past half century. Bork was a, a full-throated proponent of Oliver Wendell Holmes-style judicial deference. In his book, The Tempting of America, Bork wrote, quote, in wide areas of life, majorities are entitled to rule if they wish, simply because they are majorities. Now, now Bork applied this majoritarian deferential approach most famously uh, when it came to the issue of privacy. In 1965, the Supreme Court issued an opinion in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut. Now, in in that case, the court struck down a Connecticut law that had made it a crime for married couples to obtain and use birth control devices. The court said this this law law violated the right of privacy. Well, Robert Bork hated that opinion. He thought it was liberal judicial activism. He thought that the courts had no business second-guessing what what the state legislature had done in terms of of criminalizing uh, birth control. He said, uh, quote, the only course for a principled court is to let the majority have its way. So this approach, the Holmes-Bork approach, let the majority have its way, this is what John Roberts invoked in the, uh, in the healthcare case. But the problem for Roberts in that case was that um, very few conservatives wanted to join him for the ride. Conservatives overwhelmingly wanted the Supreme Court to strike down the Affordable Care Act in its entirety, to overrule the president and the Congress that had crafted this, uh, le- this, this national legislation. And that was something the Supreme Court has not really done since the New Deal, since uh, what was perceived as a conservative Supreme Court battled Franklin Roosevelt over his economic uh, reform agenda. Now, this other approach, strike down Obamacare in its entirety, this approach also has its roots in the late 19th and early 20th century, except this school of thought was not inspired by Justice Holmes. It was inspired by the legal figures who opposed him. The conservative and, to be a little anachronistic, libertarian judges and lawyers who urged the court to strike down reform legislation during the progressive and the New Deal eras. Now, foremost among these figures was a uh, Supreme Court justice named Stephen Field. He was appointed to the court in 1863 by President Abraham Lincoln. And if Oliver Wendell Holmes was the Supreme Court's first great champion of the will of the majority and judicial deference, then Stephen Field was his nemesis. Field spent three decades on the bench, and for our purposes today, I just wanted to highlight three sort of interlocking ideas that he, he put forward during that time. First, he said that the 14th Amendment which had been added to the Constitution in 1868 after the Civil War, said the 14th Amendment protected, quote, the right of free labor, which was the right of individuals to go into an occupation of their choosing and also for individuals to run businesses uh, without being subjected to arbitrary, unnecessary government regulation or government interference. You might call this economic liberty. Second, Field held that government regulations are only permissible when they serve a valid government purpose, such as protecting health, welfare, or safety. 
And third, Field argued that it was the job of the courts to police the other branches of government, to make sure that regulations were legitimate, were serving a legitimate end, and were not an illegitimate infringement on liberty. He said that the courts must, quote, examine into the real character of the laws and should not accept the declaration of the legislature as conclusive. So no judicial deference there. Now, Field didn't always practice what he preached, but he, he laid out these ideas in a way that contrasts nicely with Holmes. And I begin the book by, by sketching out both of, those, both of those views. Now, beginning in the late 1970s, to move forward a little, the aggressive legal philosophy that had been associated with Justice Field and his allies and successors comes, starts coming back to life. And, um, and it comes back to life thanks to uh, a new breed of libertarian legal activists, law professors, lawyers, uh, scholars. And they, they're setting out at this time to challenge both liberal and conservative conceptions of the law. Uh, these libertarians, some of whom are in the, in the room here today, they want the courts to scrutinize the other branches of government. And they have no patience with the idea of judicial deference. They want the courts to strike down any state or federal law that violates their broad constitutional vision of limited government and personal and economic freedom. One libertarian theorist, writing in a book published by the Cato Institute uh, in the 80s, called this approach, quote, principled judicial activism. Now, these people, these libertarians, are the sworn enemies of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. They're also the enemies of Robert Bork. Uh, we'll call them the libertarian legal movement. And that is one of the stories I tell in my book, is the rise of this libertarian legal movement and its prominence today in the legal debates we're having. By so many measures, the state of the world is improving, and this could easily be the greatest time in human history to be alive. But pessimism is as rampant as ever. At an event for Cato's HumanProgress.org project, Harvard psychologist and author Steven Pinker discussed the persistence of pessimism in an age of abundance. Why are people so pessimistic about the present? I'm going to suggest this morning that it's a combination of uh, a number of uh, elements of human psychology, in particular a number of emotional biases and cognitive biases, interacting with the nature of news. So let's start with the psychology. There are a number of emotional biases toward pessimism that have been well documented by psychologists, often summarized by the slogan, bad is stronger than good. This is the title of a review article by Roy Baumeister that came out a, a dozen years ago, in which he reviewed a wide variety of kinds of evidence that people are more sensitive to bad things than to good things. Losses are felt more keenly than gains. If you lose $10, that makes you feel a lot worse than uh, the, the amount uh, by which you feel better if you gain $10. Or as Jimmy Connors once put it, I hate to lose more than I like to win. Bad events leave longer traces than good ones in terms of uh, mood and memory. Criticism hurts more than uh, praise encourages. Uh, this is just the tip of an iceberg of uh, psychological phenomena in which the bad outweighs the good. Bad information is processed uh, more attentively than uh, good information. Well, why is bad stronger than good? Um, I suspect that, the, that there is a deep and profound reason, uh, namely the second law of thermodynamics. That is, that there are uh, more ways in which uh, the 
state of the world can be disordered than ordered, almost by uh, definition, or in the more vernacular version, uh, shit happens. Uh, there are a lot more ways in which something can go wrong than something can go right. So here's a question. This was uh, originally posed to me by uh, my uh, late colleague uh, Amos Tversky when I was at Stanford. Uh, how many, uh, just imagine, this is a little thought experiment. As you leave this conference, how many really good things could happen to you today? Just let your imagination run wild, the best things that you could imagine, okay? Now, how many really bad things could happen to you today? Imagine all the terrible things that could happen. And I think you'll agree that there's, the, the second list is longer than the first one. And not surprisingly, a, a, um, this probably has left a mark on our psychology. And uh, Tversky uh, also posed the, the uh, following two thought experiments. How much better could you feel than you're feeling right now? Again, try to imagine how much happier you could be. Now, how much worse could you feel than you're feeling right now? Uh, I, I, you don't even have to do the experiment. <laughs> There's also uh, an asymmetry of uh, payoffs in terms of the um, reaction to the possibility of good and bad things. Uh, what is the average cost of overreacting to a threat? Well, it's, uh, it's not zero, and we all can document cases where we have paid in foregone opportunities or in other resources for reacting to a threat that never happens. But what's the cost of underreacting to a threat, such as a, an accident, a predator, uh, a disease, and so on? There's a hypothesis, not so easy to prove, but I think quite plausible, and I bet it could be uh, proven, that for most of human evolutionary history, the fitness cost of underreaction is, was much greater than the fitness cost of overreaction. That is, that the typical threat in the environment in which our brains evolved uh, was probably greater than it is today, now that we have um, exerted technological mastery over so much of our local uh, environment. The implication would be that our current psychology is tuned, uh, is tuned to a world uh, that was more dangerous than the world that we're in today, and that therefore our sense of risk and fear and anxiety is uh, not optimally tuned to the objective risks that we face today. Now, a second, uh, this is, uh, could be multiplied by a second source of bias, uh, sometimes called the illusion of the good old days. People always pine for a uh, golden age. They're nostalgic about uh, an era in which life was uh, simpler, more predictable. And Roger Ibeck has argued that this is because people confuse change in changes in themselves with changes in the times. Now, as we get older, there are just certain things that inevitably uh, happen to us. We take on more responsibilities, so we have a greater cognitive burden. We become more vigilant about uh, threats, especially as we uh, become parents. I mean, one of, the, one of the experiences of a new parent is they never realized how much the world is filled with threats and dangers. You know, an empty paint bucket could be a uh, lethal to a toddler. Uh, we become more sensitive to more kinds of errors. This is certainly true in language. As you become uh, more literate, as you consume more printed text, you become more sensitive to some of the fine uh, points of punctuation and spelling and grammar that you may not have noticed when you had consumed less text, and so you're more likely to notice it notice errors in uh, text that you process in the future. And at the same time, we see our own capabilities uh, decline. We become stupider as we get older uh, in terms of just sheer ability to process information. 
Uh, and there is a strong tendency to misattribute many of these changes in ourselves to changes in the world. And the number of experimental manipulations that bear this out, if you have people try to make some change in their lives, say to eat less fat, then they are convinced that there are more and more ads for fatty foods. If you ask them to reduce carbohydrates, they're convinced that the number of ads for high carb foods goes up. Uh, and uh, so it's an, an experimental manipulation as well as a uh, post hoc observation. Now, uh, it would be a little hypocritical if I said, you know, more and more today, people pine for the good old days. but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but there's reason to think that this is not a recent phenomenon, that the good old days illusion is itself nothing new. In 1777, David Hume noted that the humor of blaming the present and admiring the past is strongly rooted in human nature. And I think another one of the causes, on top of the emotional biases that I have uh, reviewed, was suggested a century earlier by Thomas Hobbes, who wrote pithily, competition of praise inclineth to a reverence of antiquity, for men contend with the living, not with the dead. That is, criticizing the present is a way of criticizing your rivals. Uh, and that ties into the third emotional bias, which is the psychology of moralization. People compete for moral authority. Who is more noble? And critics are seen as more, uh, more morally engaged than apologists, or people who are simply apathetic particularly regarding contested ideas and institutions in your local social community. And uh, people identify with moral tribes. What you think is uh, uh, worthy of moralization identifies which group you affiliate with. And so the factual question, is the world getting better or worse, is, has become a referendum on modernity. That is, on the uh, gradual erosion over the centuries of family, tribe, tradition, and religion, and uh, giving way to the forces of individualism, cosmopolitanism, reason, and science. So your factual belief on whether the world is getting better or worse is a uh, litmus test for your moral beliefs on what kinds of institutions and ideas make us better off uh, and worse off. Those are three emotional biases. I think we also have uh, cognitive biases that, uh, that uh, incline us toward pessimism. Foremost among them, the availability heuristic, a uh, feature of our psychology of probability estimation documented by Amos Tversky in collaboration with Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist and author of, the, of uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, the bestseller. Kahneman and Tversky argued uh, 40 years ago that people the way the one of the ways the human brain estimates probability is by the rule of thumb that the more easily you can recall an example of something, the more probable you estimate it to be. With the uh, result that anything that makes an incident more memorable will make it seem more probable. It means that any factor of human memory, the quirks of the brain's ability to retain information, will bleed over to our estimate of uh, risk and, and likelihood. So events that are more recent will be judged to come from more probable categories. Things that are easy to imagine uh, form a picture in the mind's eye, and uh, things that are easier to retrieve. And they give a, a simple example. Which are more common, words that begin with the letter R or words that have R in the third uh, position? Now, uh, people will say there are, it's more likely that a word will begin than, with R than to have R in the third uh, 
position. They looked it up. It's the other way around. Uh, but not surprisingly, we retrieve words by their onsets. We don't retrieve words by their uh, third position. So you can ask this of almost any of any letter in the alphabet, and you'll get the same result. We just can't call words up to mind by any position than the first. And so we always judge words that begin with a particular letter to be more common than words that have a letter in any other position, just because of the quirks of human memory. Now, needless to say, uh, even though on average things that occur more often will be more memorable, uh, in any case where that fails to happen, our estimates of probability will be systematically uh, incorrect. Uh, or another way of putting it is that the cognitive psychology of human memory is not the same as the calculation of probability, which is more or less number of occurrences divided by number of opportunities in the long run. Uh, we see the availability heuristic in action uh, all the time. Uh, people are more fe fearful of uh, plane crashes, shark attacks, and terrorist bombings, especially if one just happened recently, compared to events like electrocutions, falls, and drownings, which are objectively far greater risks but tend not to, to make uh, the uh, headlines. Then there's the Pauline Kael effect. Uh, in 1972, after the most, uh, the, the biggest electoral landslide in American presidential history, uh, Pauline Kael, the movie critic of The New Yorker, said, I don't understand how uh, Nixon could have won the election. No one that I know voted for him. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think all of these psychological biases interact with the nature of news to lead to an overall uh, uh, aura of pessimism. Uh, what is news? News is pretty much by definition things that happen. It's not things that don't happen. If something blows up, that's news. If something doesn't blow up, that's not news. If a high school gets shot up, that's news. If there's another high school that doesn't get shot up, you don't see a reporter uh, in front with a camera and a news truck saying there hasn't been a rampage shooting in front of this high school or the other thousands and thousands of high schools at which a rampage shooting has not taken place. So the news is inherently biased toward violent events because violent events are events, and nonviolence uh, non is just not an event. Now, this is, I think, an even greater distorter than the commonly repeated criticism of uh, news programming policy, if it bleeds, it leads. Although, of course, that is uh, uh, a policy to be made aware of and to criticize. Uh, violence is entertaining. We uh, pay a reasonable amount of our disposable income to watch things like Shakespearean tragedies and um, uh, movies in which people get shot and blown up. Uh, it's not surprising that when it comes to attracting eyeballs to news sites, the same kind of uh, mayhem that we pay money to see fictionalized, we also pay money to see uh, in fact. Uh, also, uh, I think this is multiplied by the fact that the world now has uh, 1.75 billion smartphones increasing exponentially, which means that the world now has 1.75 billion news reporters. Uh, so violent and gory events that would have uh, been trees falling in the forest with no one to hear them uh, uh, as recently as a decade ago now can be filmed in real time and uploaded to the World Wide Web. And all of these traits of the news media stoke the availability heuristic. That is, they give us image, uh, imaginable, vivid, memorable, recent events to tilt our probability estimates. 
Uh, final point is that there, this can in turn give rise to a perverse violence news codependency in which people will commit acts of violence precisely because they anticipate how it will be covered in the news. There are uh, at least two categories of violence which are pretty much creations of the news media. Uh, terrorism. Terrorism is a technology for um, extracting the maximum amount of publicity for the smallest amount of violence. By any count, terrorism accounts for a trivial proportion of the world's deaths by violence, to say nothing of deaths from all causes put together. Uh, the most uh, damaging terrorist event in history was 9-11, which killed fewer than 3,000 people. Um, I mean, that's kind of in the noise when it comes to uh, statistics on homicide or uh, civil wars. And rampage killings. Uh, that's another uh, event which probably would not uh, occur, or not nearly as much if it weren't for the wall-to-wall uh, -wall news coverage. The way Adam Lankford put it in his book, The, um, the Myth of Martyrdom, uh, here's a, a thought experiment. Let's say you wanted to be famous. Uh, you really wanted to obtain worldwide fame in, say, in some period of time, let's say in the next year or the next you know, week or the next month. What could you do that would guarantee that you would become famous? Well, it'd be nice to you know, come up with a cure of a disease, but you know, how many of us can do that? Uh, even circulating a, uh, an internet meme, you know, a cat video. There are lots of people who are uploading cat videos. Very few of them go viral. But he noted that there is one guaranteed way in which any person in this room could be famous, and that is kill a lot of innocent people. Now, because of that uh, feature of life, uh, a market is created for people for whom notoriety is more important than anything else, including uh, life itself. And uh, that feeds a kind of violence that probably would, not, would barely exist if it weren't for the nature of news. Now available as an unabridged audiobook, The Beautiful Tree follows James Tooley from shanty towns in Africa to the mountains of China and introduces listeners to children, teachers, parents, and entrepreneurs who are building their own schools and shaping their own futures. This highly acclaimed book celebrates communities coming together and powerfully demonstrates how a parent's love and sacrifice on behalf of their children can be found in every corner of the globe. The Beautiful Tree audiobook is available as a CD at Cato.org or as a download at Amazon or Audible.com. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.